This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Every year, thousands of Malaysian students sit for the national exam, SBM. And chances are, many of them walk into examination halls with an endgame in mind, a scholarship, a shot at a world-class education without breaking the bank. In budget 2020, the government allocated 1.15 billion ringgit for scholarships under JPA and just over 2 billion ringgit for scholarships and loans under MARA, among others. So how did scholarships come to play such a crucial role to students and to the economy? I'm Diana Mustak, and today on Spotlight, scholarships. What's in it for those who give them out? And what's the cost of a free education to those who receive one? I was like many of my classmates at that point. We had sort of an idea that what happened after SPM was to get a scholarship. So it was a very conscious target. Um, I didn't think so much about careers at that point, but it's really difficult to know for certain what I wanted to do at that point uh, beyond getting a scholarship to study overseas and to explore a bigger world that was out there. This is Aizuddin Anwar, who also goes by the name Jude. He's currently a PhD student at Oxford, but back in the mid-2000s, he received a scholarship from Petronas to study chemical engineering in Australia. It is known as a very prestigious scholarship, and it was something that was um, discussed at school as well, to be able to get a scholarship to study overseas um, with this organization that is able to offer you a very lucrative job in the oil and gas industry after graduation. So there is a sense of hype. He is among the thousands of Malaysians who have received scholarships from either the government or government-linked companies. And scholarships have existed in Malaysia for decades. Actually, scholarship initially started in 1950s based on Colombo Plan. The Colombo Plan stated that uh, stronger Commonwealth countries should help the weaker Commonwealth countries. So actually, the scholarship initially given by countries like Australia, New Zealand, Britain and Canada for our students to pursue studies in higher institutions abroad. But the expectation is to have talented laborers who will be working in the civil service and who are able to serve the country. That was Dr. Husaina Banu Kanayatullah of the Department of Educational Management Planning and Policy at the University of Malaya. She explains that the Malaysian government later developed its own scholarships, dating back to the 1960s, in order to fulfill needs in the civil service. Scholarships served and continue to serve two main purposes to eradicate poverty and also restructuring economic and employment patterns in Malaysia by 1990s because as we know from the history, there has been segregation by ethnic group and also there are people who are Malays in the party field, Chinese who are business people and also Indians in estate. So we do not want such uh, segregation of occupation. So this is how the government started uh, to give scholarship, especially for students from the lower income households. So that means uh, this is a policy mechanism so that these students, they are able to earn more and their socioeconomic status will change. Basically, scholarships are meant to lift individuals out of poverty as well as fulfill the country's and company's talent needs. For example, Jude was sent to study chemical engineering in Australia, which makes sense, of course, for a future career at Petronas. You know, when you think of Petronas, it was a really good opportunity and Uh, It was for an overseas program, and at that point I thought, well, you know, I'm good at chemistry, I'm pretty decent at math, you know, I think I could do the program. 
Similarly, Dr. Husaina says that scholarships have long been used by the government as well as by companies as a useful tool to help them strategically meet their talent needs. In the Seven Malaysia Plan, it is stated that government sponsored 18,300 for undergraduate programs and 1,700 for postgraduate students abroad. And it is indicated that 59.8% of the sponsored undergraduate students abroad did their studies in science-related fields, medical, engineering, technical courses. So in the plan, there is already indication that the government will be sponsoring for certain fields. At that point of time, that is 1990. to 2000. We want graduates more in medical engineering and technical courses. So this is what indicated in 7 Malaysia plan. And if you look at 8 Malaysia plan, it is also similar. But I think now the government are always talking about IR 4.0. And you can see that there have been uh, many scholarships the words data analytics, big data, uh, artificial intelligence. So the plan is based on what is needed in the market. And while she explains that scholarships are used as a way to steer the development of the next generation of local talent into critical fields, that isn't to say only certain fields deserve resources. The aim is to certain areas that will promise job. There are also students being sponsored, for example, economics and social sciences, because in addition to priority areas, there are also certain areas that government did not neglect. I mean, I can see that there are also opportunities for students to pursue in philosophy. We are lacking philosophical field. We need more sponsorship. Creative writing, I think writing skills are very important. International relations is also another field. which is coming up. Just that you're not good at math, you're not good at science, that does not mean your field is not important. Because, for example, education. Education is an important field because school teachers, if they don't teach you well, if you know, then you cannot become engineers. So teachers are very important. Okay, so I think although we can have strategic you know, scholarship being provided for certain fields. I think scholarship also need to be given for fields that I mentioned before. But I think there need to be proper targeting. So in terms of labor market, how many uh, graduates we need so that we don't overspend on unnecessary fields. But at the same time, these are the fields that also need to be taken into consideration. And along those lines, Dr. Husaina actually also lauded the Education Ministry's recent move to do away with the arts and science streams in secondary school. But while scholarships are a great way to help educate a nation, unsurprisingly, it's also a very expensive endeavor. JPA currently sponsoring about 35 to 40,000 students abroad because students are being sponsored not only for undergraduate studies but also masters and PhD and uh, I would say that the cost incurred or the expenditure incurred by the government varies by the courses because like medical related courses are more expensive and I know now estimated cost if you want to do like IR international relations in US it can cost about 800,000 if you're doing it in Australia it will be about 500,000 so you can imagine you times by 35,000 students, so it's very costly. So if one student might cost a sponsor about 800,000 ringgit, and if there are about 40,000 students abroad, that's likely to cost the government at least an estimated 30 billion ringgit. And that's not including the amounts spent on scholarships by private institutions. 
You might have heard stories about students in the 80s, for example, not only being sponsored to get their degrees overseas, but also complete their secondary schooling in the US and the UK. You don't hear so much about things like that anymore because a lot of those initiatives have since been cut back. Because of the drain on foreign reserve as a result of financing overseas education, and it was not felt until 1985 and 1986 recession when all the primary commodity prices collapsed, causing a balance of payment crisis, which in turn had adverse effect on the balance sheet of banks and also caused the economy to contract by 1%. So uh, this makes the government to rethink their policy and also to meet the huge demand for higher education, as I think previously the demand was not so high. And on top of that, she says this was all more feasible back in the 80s when there simply wasn't as much demand for higher education due to lack of awareness as well as a focus on primary schooling. Imagine if we continued those policies today, a time when demand for higher education has grown considerably. After the break, how these large education costs helped give rise to the local education landscape as we now know it. BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Spotlight, where today we're looking at the purpose and effects of scholarships for individuals who receive them, as well as for organizations that grant them. I'm Diana Mustak. Before the break, we established that, unsurprisingly, scholarships are expensive. I spoke to Dr. Husaina, professor in the Department of Educational Management, Planning and Policy at University Malaya, about how exactly the government dealt with the impact of scholarships to its balance sheet. To stem the outflow of foreign exchange, the government during the 6th Malaysia Plan 1991-1995 till adopted a policy of expanding the role of private sector as a provider of higher education. This was within the wider policy framework of promoting the private sector as an engine of growth. According to Dr. Husaina, the weaker currency and a steadily growing demand for higher education became the impetus for the government to broaden access to local institutions. Before 1990s, our universities are limited to five universities. Because even though we have a private institution, they can't grant degree. Okay, so because of the private sector as a provider of higher education, then we have private institution where they can grant degrees. So because of the increasing number of higher institution, we started to prioritize okay, certain areas which already have locally, so we'll send the students locally. As a result, more local private institutions were born, a trend we continue to see today. Some were also tied to big organizations with strategic talent needs. Petronas, as an example, established its University Technology Petronas in 1997. More recently, Bank Negara Malaysia has also partnered with prominent business school MIT Sloan on the Asia Business School to offer a master's in central banking. But the other problem with scholarships, which is also related to the fact that they cost a lot of money, is that the bodies that grant these privileges often have to be very selective about who they bestow them upon. That's often why selection processes are quite rigorous. I went to the interview process. Um, I think they held it at um, University Technology Petronas in, in Pera uh, after SPM finished, if I recall correctly. And so you go through the motions, they have interviews and all these tests. And, um, That's and Jude again, offer, reflecting on the interview he had to go through, which included tests and interviews. I mean, I remember having to go through this process myself. 
At one point, I had to go through a team building activity where I had to build a bridge out of raw spaghetti, which was strong enough to support a can of tomato sauce. Other more common activities include group presentations and case studies, and that's on top of the writing assignments like personal statements. The trouble then arises when students return after anywhere between three to five years abroad and realize the field they were supposed to study isn't really their passion. Well, that's not too far off from Jude's experience. Once I took the scholarship, it it still is that sense of sort of delayed things. So you think about it later once you uh, once you finish the course. Um, but for me at that point, it was primarily because I wanted to to go overseas. Now, in hindsight, of course, it was like I wish I would have thought much more deeper about you know what options I had um, in terms of courses. But I think it worked out okay. Like Jude, the main drive for many 18-year-olds accepting a scholarship is just to go overseas. And it's hard to judge people who find themselves in these positions because they would have had to make such a big life decision at such a young age. The draw of wanting to go overseas is really strong at that point. It can almost feel like no price is too high to pay. I went through the course over the course of of the four years. Um, I did a few internships and I realized that while it was fascinating, it just wasn't for me. It wasn't um, the best use of my passion, I suppose. If I had became an engineer, I would have been a decent engineer. But I felt that um, I didn't really have the drive to do it. And I didn't want to do something that I felt wasn't the most meaningful for me. The challenge for both the graduate and the employer is to figure out a career plan that works for both parties. Jude was relatively lucky in this regard. So the way it works is that you have to sit for an interview uh, after you graduate in order for them to be able to place you in a job in the company. So I, at that point, I knew that I didn't really want to practice as an engineer. So I consciously told the panel that I didn't want to be placed uh, in a technical position. Uh, And so they actually put me in a team that was involved in doing um, what they called supply chain management. And then I took a one-year sabbatical to do a master's degree. And when I came back, I was assigned to a different department, which was much more aligned to my own interests. But many people end up spending years dissatisfied with their jobs because they're unable to find an arrangement that works for them. And that's even if they come back at all. There have been cases whereby our students, we sponsor, they go overseas, but then they never return. But brain drain can happen not only for sponsored students, it can also happen for not sponsored students because uh, our intellectuals are moving out, right? When they move out to countries like Australia, Singapore and so on, maybe because of the better salaries, better lifestyles, better quality. So that would be some of the important factors that determine brain drain. That was Dr. Husaina again. And while numbers on this aren't readily available, we know it does happen. You might have even heard of people who've done such things. Jude says he came back to Malaysia after he graduated because he felt like he had been entrusted to. There is that sense of um, national obligation as well, because, you know, having had an organization spend so much money on your education, you know, it's not a very uh, cheap endeavor. Um, even though it is an organization like Petronas, it is a national oil company. It is, in a sense, taxpayers' money that you're spending. So I felt that, of course, that sense of obligation to come back because it was only right that I would be able to sort of, you know, serve the organization in the country uh, by returning home. But like Dr. Husaina said, some people make the decision not to return because of better salaries and lifestyles. 
So the challenge is how do we get people to see scholarships more as a responsibility than just a privilege they might be entitled to? It's a very tricky question because it's such a personal decision, but it's also influenced by many factors. I think some people make that decision because of very practical reasons as well. Maybe they feel like they would be able to uh, have much more economic advantage by you know, being overseas or the opportunities are, uh, are bigger. I do, however, have to say that I think there's often this, this idea that scholarships are are purely this idea of merit, right? Like you deserve a scholarship because you did so well in school and, you know, it's kind of this entitlement that you have. But actually, when you think about the financial source of, you know, this funding, it's usually not something that can be considered in isolation. It's tied to so many things, a sense of um, a national obligation being one of them because of the source of that funding. But as much as it is a personal decision to renege on a scholarship bond, Doing so does, in one way or another, deprive others of the same opportunity. Dr. Husaina says this is why government agencies have either been stricter about repayment policies and why some, like Mara, for example, have opted to give convertible loans instead of straight-up scholarships. That is the kind of scholarship where the loan repayment depends on how good your final grades are. So the important question then is whether scholarships have created an upward mobile society. We've mostly been focusing on the role of scholarships in meeting organizational talent needs. But have they been effective at their other purpose, lifting people out of poverty? This is an important question because the government continues to allocate more money for scholarships. Budget 2020 saw an increase in scholarships under JPA with a total allocation of 1.15 billion ringgit, which is an 11% increase from the amount in 2019. And while you and I might know people who have improved their life circumstances by being given the chance to pursue a higher education because of a scholarship, again, we don't have the exact numbers. It's hard to say how many people have been helped or how much they've been helped. But the key takeaway here for individuals who are seeking sponsorship is that a scholarship is not really a right. It often needs to be taken with a sense of duty. I think what a lot of people on scholarships take for granted is how expensive education can be. So I think the biggest opportunity that it gave me is a sense of financial freedom. That was Jude again. And his point about financial freedom here is important. Because even though scholarships come with a bond, according to Rajan Devadesan, licensed financial planner with Manulife Investment Management and CEO of Wealth Creation, Sindiran Berhad, it is probably the best way for most people without a family fortune to fund an education. In my opinion, if a student is smart enough and fortunate enough to land a scholarship, it is infinitely better to accept the scholarship than to take on student loans. Uh, you know, if they've got far more money than they know what to do with, um, only accept the scholarship if it is from a company with which the student would very much like to build a career. But the vast majority of students who qualify for scholarships which come with um, strings attached, uh, you know, bonds to serve, um, I think they would be well served to accept the scholarship. If you've got uh, student loans that you need to service, um, those loans can actually, um, in aggregate, become an albatross around the neck that can actually slow things down for maybe 10 years, for some people even 20, 25 years. It's a terrible thing. So if if there's any way for you to actually avoid student loans, particularly if you're smart enough to get a scholarship, I would recommend it. 
On the other hand, from a government's perspective, I asked Dr. Husaina what the right model of education funding might be, especially since to continue funding more and more students abroad might prove to be a strain on the country's finances. It depends on what is needed for the future. If we need more accountants in future or more economists in future, we look at our local institution. We have to be selective of the area that we want to send new emerging areas. So then we sponsor students for overseas. At the same time, I mentioned that there are also other fields which also need to be emphasized. So there should be a combination. So priority is given for the scholarship provided for the local institution, but they are also scholarship provided for overseas education so that we have a mixture because in workforce, we need talented laborers who come from diverse background. And finally, it seems both important and timely to recognize one final benefit of scholarships from an education overseas. And that's being able to see the world and the people around you from a different perspective. Once you're sort of forced outside of discomforts of your homeland, you have um, a different perspective about issues, you know, such as diversity or having to negotiate different kinds of lifestyles and different opinions. And so I suppose it has helped me become much more adept at um, perspective taking. I I definitely feel that that has given me a keener sense of awareness about um, the importance of uh, understanding or attempting to understand the other. or people who are different than you. And studying abroad has definitely, um, in some ways, forced me to, to sort of look at things from a different angle constantly, you know, shifting positions. Um, and I definitely feel that I'm uh, a better person because of that. I think it's safe to say there will always be a need to create a society where everyone is able to relate to one another and see things from the other's point of view. The question is just, what's the best way to do that? I'm Diana Mustak. You've been listening to Spotlight on the Morning Run, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.